Coming up, what an excellent day for symbolism. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 28 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. All right, so our minute begins outside the McNeil home, as dead leaves blow away in an autumn breeze. And it ends with Chris saying, you're kidding me. And I wanted to point out that this is the first time we've seen the house from the front. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, actually, it does. Um, I don't remember seeing the house from this angle uh, in any of the other shots. Yeah, we've just seen the house from the other side, from the river, uh, as if we're a spirit going into the windows, or uh, we can get a glimpse of the stairs that have come famous later. Right, right. And this is a this is a, a particularly low angle that we're looking at the house. The house kind of looms in front of us, right? Looks spooky to me. Very, very spooky with those leaves blowing in the wind. Oof. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, folks, it is in this minute that I also want to talk about that deleted scene. If you remember, we talked about a scene that was written, shot, and then omitted from the film, from both cuts of the film. So it's not in the theatrical cut, and it's not in the version you've never seen. It's just nowhere. It's literally the scene you've never seen. However, it is present in both the book and the screenplay. So I guess that speaks to the question, you know, was Friedkin just putting every single thing back in? Apparently not. He would have kept this scene out for some reason. He did not like it. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, I want to I want to play that little game. I want to discuss why it was taken out after we take a look at it. Um, So in both the book and the screenplay, it happens right after Chris goes up into the attic to look for rats, which hasn't happened yet. But it happens right before this scene, this minute with Chris on the phone trying to reach Howard, Reagan's dad. So I decided to put it here as well, right before the phone call, because I think it delivers a good one-two punch and it shows a good escalation in terms of how Howdy has been working on Reagan. Um, the scene in the book is really quite beautiful and sad. Um, let's have a listen. A reading from the Book of Blatty. Early in the evening, Chris took Reagan out to a movie. And the following day, they drove around to points of interest in Chris's Jaguar XKE. The Lincoln Memorial, the Capitol, the Cherry Blossom Lagoon, a bite to eat, then across the river to Arlington Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Reagan turned solemn, and later, at the grave of John F. Kennedy, seemed to grow distant and a little sad. She stared at the eternal flame for a time, then mutely reached for Chris's hand. Mom, why do people have to die? The question pierced her mother's soul. Oh, Rags, you too, you too. Oh, no. And yet what could she tell her? Lies? She couldn't. She looked at her daughter's upturned face, eyes misting with tears. Had she sensed her own thoughts? She had done it so often, so often before. Honey, people get tired, she answered Reagan tenderly. Why does God let them? For a moment, Chris stared. She was puzzled, disturbed. An atheist, she had never taught Reagan religion. She thought it dishonest. Who's been telling you about God? She asked. Sharon. Oh, she would have to speak to her. Mom, why does God let us get tired? Looking down at those sensitive eyes and that pain, Chris surrendered, couldn't tell her what she believed. Well, after a while, God gets lonesome for us, Rags. He wants us back. 
Regan folded herself into silence. She stayed quiet during the drive home, and her mood persisted all the rest of the day and through Monday. On Tuesday, Regan's birthday, it seemed to break. Chris took her along to the filming, and when the shooting day was over, the cast and crew sang Happy Birthday and brought out a cake. Always a kind and gentle man when sober, Dennings had the lights rewarmed and filmed her as she cut it. He called it a screen test, and afterwards promised to make her a star. She seemed quite gay. But after dinner and the opening of presents, the mood seemed to fade. No word from Howard. Chris placed a call to him in Rome and was told by a clerk at his hotel that he hadn't been there for several days and couldn't be reached. He was somewhere on a yacht. Chris made excuses. Reagan nodded, subdued, and shook her head to her mother's suggestion that they go to the hot shop for a shake. Without a word, she went downstairs to the basement playroom, where she remained until time for bed. The following morning, when Chris opened her eyes, she found Reagan in bed with her, half awake. Well, what in the... What are you doing here? Chris chuckled. My bed was shaking. You nut. Chris kissed her and pulled up her covers. Go to sleep. It's still early. What looked like morning was the beginning of endless night. Ooh. I like that little bit with Burke at the very end, how like he took the time to rewarm the lights and get everyone to sing happy birthday. That's like a, a really sweet gesture, right? Yeah. One of my favorite birthdays is uh, when we were working on a movie, I was directing Lester and Lester surprised uh-huh. me with the birthday cake in the oh. middle of his take. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, now I do. <laughs> I didn't even have that in my notes. You, ju- you just brought that all back. Yeah. Yeah. Lester, um, Lester, we were on a very important scene and we were going to wait for lunch and we were on, we had done um, four takes of it and I thought Lester had gotten it. And, and then um, Lester said, can I get another one? And I, I tried to, when I direct, try to have a rule that, um, that if the actor wants to do another one that we're not going to do, you know, sort of the same thing, but, but slightly tweaked that we're going to take a really big chance with right. the next take. So that's mm-hmm. my general rule. So then I gave Lester some note, I don't remember. And he said, Hmm, <laughs> because the, the take that he, he only asked for another take because he was trying to surprise you with my birthday cake. <laughs> said, hmm, I think we'll need another one after that. Then. <laughs> Guys, I'm the worst at keeping secrets. Um, and I, and I just barely, uh, got, through that one with uh, by the skin of my teeth, I think <laughs> that one fooled me. Yeah, I was I was very I was very surprised. So was, that's one of my very favorite birthday memories. Oh well, um, but yeah, and, and and I love it here. I love the way that it's uh, that's per- portrayed here. Right, this is um, like I said, a really sweet gesture, and I'm glad we were able to read it on the show uh, because things are quickly going to get darker and more lonely for Reagan, and just that little bit of communion with her mother with. Burke and that little, you know, screen test, right, is a light in that darkness. It's like when you're driving out of town and you pass that that last little outpost, that last little gas station, this little island of light, and you watch it go in your rearview mirror and you're like, you know, and then it's gone and you realize you have left the edge, right? Um, and you have entered the abyss, right? Which it, those are the titles of this particular transition in the book, right? Part one is called The Beginning, right? Very biblical. Part two is The Edge. And this minute right here, we're get, we're edging closer and closer to the abyss, right? Mm. So there's no turning back here. This is the crossing, right? Yeah, as it, you know, as 
I'm not as good a director as uh, Billy Friedkin, obviously. I, w- I would feel compelled to include those titles in the movie. I'm like, those are such good titles, right? <laughs> well, wonderful. I'd be compelled to, to put little title cards in here. The end of the edge. Right, <laughs> the beginning yeah. of the abyss. No, it'd be, it'd be a very Kubrick thing, right? Like the uh-huh. way that he does it in, in The Shining. It's like right. Wednesday, right? <laughs> right. Hear, is this a rumor? Uh, uh, you, you can fact check me on this. And mm-hmm. folks, you can also fact check us, right? The Exorcist Minute at gmail.com. But wasn't there a rumor that uh, that Kubrick was going to direct this film? Oh, I hadn't heard that. Okay. Um, well, now I've put it out there. So now <laughs> I am responsible for uh, going and checking if that is true or if I'm just like speaking out of the side of my mouth. Uh, oh, yeah. so. he, he would be, he would have been very busy. You know, he made uh, very few films that he took mm. them a while. So he would have been in between the Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, which took a long time. So. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but I'm now I just have in my head, right? A Kubrick exorcist. I mean, like a Friedkin exorcist is is wonderful. It's the one we have, and I'm you know I'm so glad we have it. But now I'm like, hmm, you know. Well, you 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 um we we hesitate to think of uh what it's like now. I, I'm mm. having trouble even saying this, but now it seems obvious. But uh, for Kubrick to adapt Stephen King after he had right. adapted. Uh, Vladimir Nabokov and Lolita or use something major like that. That was seen as strange at the time for him to do a Stephen King uh, version of a movie uh, to do mm. the shining. And I don't know if you know, this isn't the shining minute or anything like that, but, right. but uh, the shining, Which there the, is one room. 237. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Right. Good. Good. Someone yeah. needs to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, when they made the shining, um, it was a pretty divisive film. Now it's usually thought right. as one of Kubrick's best films and one of the best films ever made. Uh, but Kubrick was nominated for a Razzie award <laughs> for directing the shining. People love wait, to make what? fun of him. Oh yeah. 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 I, well, wait, wait, wait. Okay. I, <laughs> Am I dumb? Arazi is bad, right? Arazi like, is bad. Yes, Arazi <laughs> is the worst picture of the year. So he was Why? nominated for worst director uh, for The Shining, and um, Shelley Duvall was nominated for uh, worst supporting actress for The Shining, what? which is ridiculous. That's one of the that, great performances. That but, is insane. Yeah, but people like that is to, as insane as Jack Torrance. <laughs> but people like to to make fun of Kubrick, this this highfalutin director coming down to the level of Stephen King and and doing a you know a horror film. <laughs> Stephen King being like, how dare you come down to my level? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Even King didn't like The Shining um, and Famously. still didn't like The Shining, right? Uh, but Hitchcock, when he would uh, adapt novels, uh, he he would not adapt great novels. He would adapt mm. middling novels. And uh, at the time, that was seen as, uh, you know, kind of... Oh, what's the word? The, the, he do, he wasn't doing the prestige adaptations. He was doing the genre adaptations. And mm. at the time, that was seen as lesser than, say, William Wyler, who was directing at the same time. And now we see his adaptations as being better than uh, most of the books that he was adapting. Interesting. Except and perhaps ta- Rebecca. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Um, huh. And, and like, and we've we've talked about this before on the show. We've talked about like um, the the trope of like, oh, the book is always better than the movie. But uh, I think I think. Here again, we have uh, an example, a shining example. <laughs> um, <laughs> God, that's lame. Um, <laughs> but I, like, it, it surprises me so much that he got a Razzie for that. When if I, okay, okay, so I'm I'm familiar with like the whole Stephen King um, mythos, and yeah, he famously hated uh, Kubrick's version. But wait, like, honestly, Steve, honestly, Stevie, it, like. It's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. So just, you know, like as much as you hate it. And oh, and folks, if you want to see uh, the version that Stephen King prefers, uh, it's out there. Go go watch it. Go mm-hmm. watch the, the miniseries with Stephen Weber. Um, 
that's that's what he wanted. Um, and we have that. So, but uh, I prefer the Jack Nicholson, Stanley Kubrick, Shelley Duvall. <laughs> yes, and I do want to point out that just this year, the uh, the Razzie—I <laughs> don't know why we're talking about Razzie. So, <laughs> that the that the Razzie Award founder um, rescinded the nomination for um, for Shelley Duvall. Oh, good. Uh, well, you know, he can't officially. So it's just him going out there and saying, like, I rescind it. <laughs> you like, I see he has the power to do that. Um, okay. But yeah, I think that's incredibly unfair. And that was basically like, oh, they have they have a history of just making fun of actors who take risks and, and, and people who are just unusual in their personal life, like Shelley Duvall is. But mm-hmm. now Shelley Duvall is very severely mentally ill. I don't know if you've seen that, which is very sad. I, oh, I did not know that. Oh, my yeah, gosh. yeah. Very How severely in the dark mentally am I about ill. That? Oh, uh, well, she went on Dr. Phil and, and gave really terrible rambling um, answers that oh. were very sad and he asked her like where do you think robin williams is his her um her co-star from popeye and she said robin mm-hmm. isn't dead where do you think he is he's shape-shifting and it's just really sad really oh, awful no. things oh, okay. so yeah so i think out of deference for for her and what she's going through they, he was he said oh i you know i i'm gonna take that away but not that he could oh, oh my gosh <laughs> okay. she had a hard time all throughout like she gets a razzy but like even when she was working with kubrick like kubrick was famously like tough on her wasn't he yes absolutely oh god well anyways that is one of the best performances in film <laughs> so yeah. she'll leave mm-hmm. them all in the shining so I, i'll yep. go in right yep. now anyways yep. where the hell are we where in the hell movie? are we okay so yeah okay back to this minute um <laughs> but oh, okay actually back to this un uh this this uh, omitted right, scene right. right did you catch that in the book chris tell chris tries to call howard uh you know like we're all about to see in this minute and then she tries to make excuses and then reagan immediately goes down into that basement playroom and doesn't come back until bedtime for what why is she going down there talking to her new friend about what just happened Ugh. Mm. right captain howdy why did my dad not call me on my birthday captain howdy why do people have to die no don't ask captain howdy that stuff <laughs> yeah he's the, the the dr phil of that world He's the evil Dr. Phil. He's the... Oh, wait. Were you making a joke that Dr. Phil is already evil? Oh, I don't think he's evil. No, I don't think that he's evil. People make fun of him because he's not a doctor, they say, but he's oh. a doctor of social work. I mean, he is a doctor. Gotcha. Okay. People, people make fun of him. It's like he's not a doctor, doctor. Right. He's, he's, he's a doctor in the way that Captain Howdy is a captain. <laughs> He rode away. Right. <laughs> he got it. <laughs> Just Captain Howdy's office. He has this little, you know, like mail-in diploma on the back on the back wall. It's like, um, you know, I don't mean to criticize my alma mater and your alma mater, but mm-hmm. like a lot of graduates from uh, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I don't mm-hmm. have my diploma. I don't know where it is. I Do you have, no have your idea diploma? Where mine is. No, I. <laughs> I never. I mean, as in, I never got my diploma. Like, like so many people who graduated from UNLV, you talk to them mm. years later. Like, where is it? Like, I don't know. I never got a diploma from yeah. UNLV. <laughs> no, I mean, it. Like, I'm, I'm recording now. So this is Thanksgiving weekend for just to just to date this episode. But um, uh, I'm recording from uh, my my old family home where my where my folks still live because you know came over for Thanksgiving dinner and uh, and Keenan Keenan and uh, and his boyfriend came over and it was very lovely. It was very nice. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, the the diploma is probably in this house somewhere. Um, yeah, in well, a box. You're, you're a step ahead of me. <laughs> Mine is with Captain Howdy's <laughs> diploma somewhere. <laughs> and yes, oh, just for, for anyone, I, I will defend Doctor Phil. He has a doctorate. He is doctor. Okay, so he <laughs> just because he he's not a medical doctor or a psychiatrist, he is a doctor. Yes. Okay, uh, but yeah, it, it, let's take a look at this actual minute now. In the film, both the theatrical cut and the version you've never seen, uh, this scene immediately 
follows the one that we just watched, uh, which ends with Kara saying, I think I've lost my faith, Tom. And folks have pointed out that uh, this admission, this uh, <laughs> confession, uh, coupled with uh, the shot of dead leaves in this minute is actually pretty poetic, right? If Karis had seasons, he would be in autumn right now, edging towards winter, and hopes and dreams of a purpose and a higher power are but leaves in a cold wind. And even the sound this wind makes... and. It, I'm sorry, guys. I know you folks at home are like, oh my God, he's talking about wind again. Uh, I thought we were done with all of this. But but no, I'm, I'm serious. Listen to the sound that they chose. You've probably heard this before. It's almost like a, um, a stock sound. This is a very wintry wind. It's uh, not a desert wind. It's not bringing locusts or famine or fever. It's bringing chills and the suggestion of, or I guess because it's a season, the promise of death. Will there be a spring? We don't know. We never know. That's the scary part. Seasons are big and people are small. We can only see a few feet ahead of us and that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. The way Blatty is telling us, um, you know, uh, that the change is happening. What looked like morning was the beginning of endless night. Now, uh, from there, we get an abrupt cut to Chris saying, hello, we're in the house. She's on the phone. Sharon is with her. I really like Kitty Wynn's instinct to look up when Chris says hello at the top of the scene, right? That's exactly how you would play it. Like if she's been waiting for 20 minutes and then Chris says hello, Sharon would look up like, oh, she got through, right? Mm -hmm. And then we find out that it's just the operator. And so Chris starts pacing and Sharon has this almost like comic bit of business where she's sort of following after Chris, trying to like untangle the cord as Chris is pacing up and down. And we find that Chris has been on the phone for 20 minutes, like I said, trying to reach Howard, her ex uh, her ex-husband at the Hotel Excelsior in Rome, and that this is also Reagan's birthday. I think that's one of the hardest things for me as an actor is to, uh, is, is to play like you've been doing nothing for a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know why I have such trouble with that, but yeah, to, to sort of put yourself in the space, you've been sitting here for 20 minutes and nothing's happened. I, I think yeah. my nervous energy gets too, too much to me, but mm. uh, do you know, maybe it's in the book. I don't know. Sure. What's Howard's job that he has to be in Rome having this glamorous life. I don't think it says what his job is, mm -hmm. um, but it does like, there's, there's like a, a very quick mention of why they're not together anymore. And it's that, Reagan and Chris were always on the covers of the magazines. It was them. It was like, you know, uh, the glamour girls, the pixie twins, right? It was always them. And he was kind of like on the outskirts of it. Um, so oh. he was like a third wheel. Almost. So it's not and that so, he's an actor or something, uh, or something I, glamorous himself, because that's what I would think if he's in Rome, that he's an actor. Right. I don't know. You would think, right? Like, you know, we, we have the trope of like celebrity marriages and celebrity divorces and stuff like that, but I'm not sure. Um, he could be, I, I don't think it actually specifies. Um, but again, we could be wrong folks. Uh, you know, if you, if you caught something about Howard's job, other than being, you know, an asshole, um, <laughs> then, yep. uh, let us know. But yeah, Rome at the time is a hotbed of international cinema in the 1970s. So uh, a lot of international productions have been started to be made in the late 50s and into the 60s, where it's hard to tell whether a movie is really an American movie or a British movie, uh, things like Lawrence of Arabia or The Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, uh, so that's because the movies are half uh, financed by American studios and half financed by British studios. And a lot of them end up shooting in Rome at this um, movie studio called Cinecitta, which was the best movie uh, studio in the world at that time. So Rome became this hotbed of, of filmmaking and glamour. And you mentioned earlier that Audrey Hepburn had um, 
been offered the role of Chris McNeil right. and turned it down. And she said that she would only do it if they had brought the production to Rome, which isn't right. as silly as it might sound, because oh, that a lot oh. of productions had been in Rome. It's silly to try to, um, you know, shoot exclusively in Rome, potentially, uh, and, and do all of Washington there, especially when Blatty wants to do Washington in Washington. Right. And Healy uh, Hall and all that. Right. Stuff. Right. But it's not unheard of. So uh, I did look up the Hotel Excelsior. I was wondering if that was a real place. And it is a real place. It's now um, it's now called the Westin Hotel Excelsior. So everything's been corporatized. But it was a fancy, fancy place from the beginning of the 1900s. And uh, people, when they went and shot Ben-Hur in, uh, in Rome, for instance, one of these international co-productions, that's where everybody stayed. And I happened to look, I don't know enough about the the story about um, Kurt Cobain. So I don't want to, I hesitate to wade into the controversy that people um, have with Kurt Cobain. I don't know if you're a Kurt Cobain fan. I am not familiar, no. Oh, okay, good. So we will not way into this uh but he he had a um a drug overdose at the hotel excelsior uh in rome and then a month later he killed himself um in, oh, in seattle uh so courtney love his wife said that that he had tried to kill himself in the hotel excelsior and failed uh, but that's controversial people you know some cobain fans do not like courtney love and take everything that she says um uh, they're very skeptical of that oh my god yeah <sighs> And that's and that's how it is, folks. When you're when you're in the public eye, when you're in the limelight, like everything you do, every like all of your your dirty laundry, all of your, you know, your very human problems and your very human issues get mm-hmm. you know blown up and and dissected by the rest of the world. Oof. Right. And I did I did think that that sort of speaks to the um you know the cachet that we're trying to portray here. Not, not that I mean Kirk Cobain was there much later than The Exorcist, but uh, but the idea that oh he's not Howard is not only in Rome, he's at a specific place uh, uh, with a story to it. Yeah. So he's he's somewhat of a big deal, we just don't know how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um so now as Chris exclaims, Jesus Christ, uh, the music changes and we get this little hint of strings, which sounds suspiciously Bernard Herman-y. Um, what do you think, Keenan? It, like, it reminded me of the, of the psycho shower scene. It was like, ring, 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 <laughs> ring. Um, and it certainly matches Chris's emotional state right now. I'm not saying she's a psycho, but uh, this is certainly the most like emotionally distressed we've seen her so far and with good reason right she's furious at this scumbag of a father who can't call his own daughter on her birthday and she's well yeah like what do you think of this music i i agree with you it is the most agitated we've seen her the music is uh, i think a little more subtle than you're talking about i went and Mm. listened to it Uh, i have a blu-ray rip and then i also went to the amazon listened to it there Mm -hmm. um it's more obvious in the mix on the amazon one so i think that's just a you know matter of the mixes but okay yeah i'm listening to Headphones, so it's probably yeah yeah i don't know why i don't know why that is but but it is more obvious there but i was thinking that this is this the first piece of music we've seen from the film um so we've had polymorphia and we've had tubular bells right right um so when i first started looking at this movie with you in detail i, I was looking i was like oh how strange is the film's composer jack nietzsche didn't get an oscar nomination uh because the music is so strong and then it turns out significant parts of it the things that we remember as the extra music are existing pieces of music which makes sense um but jack nietzsche is actually a major composer he will uh, go on to uh, compose one floor of the cuckoo's nest and stand by me and uh up until his time in film he was sort of phil specter's right hand man in building the wall of sound which revolutionized rock music in the 1960s and 70s okay Uh, yeah so Mm -hmm. he he was a major person kind of in the engineering space before he became a composer in his own right um so it's not like it's not like friedkin and the other people um 
didn't go with Bernard Herrmann and then uh, decide just to use existing pieces and and then not have a major composer, you know, someone someone in that department. They actually did get a really big guy at the time. Okay, so yeah, so there, so yeah, folks, there is a composer behind all of this, even though, like, yeah, like Polymorphia and Tubular Bells, like we know, like they came from like other places. Yeah, which again surprised me because I know them as. The Exorcist score, right? The Exorcist theme, right? Like, <laughs> and so does I'm sure. Like, so does ninety percent of the you know uh, uh, of everybody. Like, you know, you see on those little Halloween CDs or or on right. like, you know like Halloween playlists and stuff like that on YouTube. Oh, right. I, I had to Google mid-show. I, I'm sorry. I normally don't do oh. this, but I was trying to remember what Jack Nietzsche won his Oscar for. And it's for co-writing Up Where We Belong from, um, from uh, oh, jeez, um, what's, that, what's that movie called? An Officer and Gentleman? An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, do you okay. know that song? Love lifts us up where we belong. Oh, I know that song, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote that and won the Oscar oh. for that one. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah, so he's a big deal. Okay. Well, very, very big deal. Um, and yeah, I, so, so he probably did this little like thing with the strings right here. I think right? so. That's just, I couldn't find any other, I'm skeptical now after learning that the other pieces are not original. Are, are from, yeah. <laughs> right. So, but I, I believe this is Jack Nietzsche. Okay. And it's, it's interesting because like I mentioned, it, it reminds me a little bit of Psycho, but it's almost like, 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 it's not like that. It's not like in your face, like, rah, 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 you know, it's more almost like, mocking it's like ring, mm-hmm. ring, ring, ring. it's like, like almost like like laughter in the like in the tone of psycho um at, at, at like maybe at what's going on but um but yeah it, it, certainly the most emotionally distressed we've seen chris so far right mm-hmm. um right oh and also yeah she's framed by this roaring fire in the background this fire which i think actually serves two purposes maybe three i love the double duty or the the triple duty that this fire is doing um so now, the whole time we've been moving, uh, as Chris and Sharon pace back and forth, the camera is retreating from them, backing out of this scene, through the open door. Hey, the door is open. Out of the bedroom and into the hall. And I like how we've established the geography of this upstairs area pretty well by now, right? This is the same hallway from earlier. When we first meet Chris, she gets out of bed to investigate those noises. So that's her bedroom. We know that's her bedroom. And as the camera shifts, we see that we're looking at a wall of the bedroom that we haven't seen before, dominated by this huge fireplace. And we see in that fireplace is a roaring fire, which makes me wonder how cold is that house right now that we need a fire like that, right? Um, And now you may have also noticed right above the fire on the mantle, in fact, we see it before we see the fire, is a photo, very much like the one on Chris's bedside table. It is another photo of Reagan, and I can't help but see this as a visual hint. Reagan is hanging, suspended over flames, just like the images in the downstairs playroom of uh, the witch enticing the children into her candy house or the big bad wolf who's already disguised as grandma. Remember, both of those image were, images were looming directly over Reagan as she made that uh, bird from before. And now we have Reagan suspended over flames. One more hint that she is in danger. You know, and, that's one of those things now that you've pointed out to me specifically, I will not be able to not see that when I watch right? the movie. <laughs> And also, if you look at this photo, it's kind of hard to see. It's it's very far away and it's a little blurry, right? Even if you zoom, like I'm zooming with the, um, uh, you know, in, in Amazon. I don't know if you can see it like mm-hmm. a little bit better in the in the DVD or the Blu-ray. But I think the blurriness combined with the uh, starkness of the grayscale mm-hmm. makes it so that you can barely make out those features. The shadows make her face look thin and her eyes look sunken. And I'm 
almost tempted to think that this is like a prelude of what's to come. Uh, like from far away, if you squint, it kind of looks like what she's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, what she's going to look like. So much so that I noticed, folks, if you go back to uh, look at the first edition cover, remember, it looks like it's like even in the same pose. Like it's kind of like, you know, uh, off to the side, kind of looking, you know, with the head turned, um, giving this little side eye. Like it's almost like they're trying to recreate that image, right? Maybe that's going a little too far. I don't know. But like, well, it's a very famous image, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so famous that my book has covered it up with uh, <laughs> with a uh, exclamation to see the movie. It's the most electrifying thing that will ever happen to you. I, I still can't get over that. That is such a that is that is a blasphemy. It's like um, anyway. So uh, like I really love this. This is a very visual minute. We had the leaves at the beginning. We have this fire. We have the photo, and I think this shot is doing something else as well. As we move from the bedroom to the hallway, our mind goes, "Oh yeah, I remember this hallway." And then we see the photo, and we're like, "Oh yeah, Reagan." And then we think, "Wait, where's Reagan?" And because we remember the hallway, we suddenly realize where the camera is going before it gets there. And we're like, oh, no. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, shot here uh, because when when we're at the beginning of it and we are uh, with what looks like a scene that's just between Chris and Sharon, it is actually a zoom out. The camera isn't moving. The camera is is zooming out, which gives it that sort of cold mechanical feels we talked about previously. And then when it reaches the full effect of its zoom out, basically when you see the top of the doorframe, then the zoom stops and then the camera's movement becomes more apparent. And the, so we're sort of shifting from this... Um, this mechanical uh, zoom, which is the camera not moving, to the camera actually moving. And it's about at that time when the camera shifts from a zoom to a pullback that we realize that, oh, this isn't really from Chris's or Sharon's point of view. It's really from Reagan's. Like you say, even before we see Reagan, we, we understand that it, it's um, it's more about someone observing them rather than, right. uh, than them living in it. Yeah. And it's not notice folks. I mean, another, like just really subtle thing, right? If it is Reagan, if we're, if we're to understand that this point of view is Reagan, she's retreating. She's not, she's not going towards, she's moving away. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yes. So, so yeah, we move through that open door of Chris's bedroom out into the hallway, down the hall and through another open doorway. And there's Reagan. She's been listening to this whole thing. Ah. And to speak to what Chris is saying here, like this is this is like really, really heavy stuff like that a child should not hear. Um, Like I said, this is the first time in the movie that we have seen Chris like this. So that's already a bit jarring. We gather that she's mad uh, because uh, today is Reagan's birthday and Howard, her ex-husband, Reagan's father, hasn't called. And the points that I want to give Chris for being so fierce and protective of her daughter, I sort of got to take those points back because Chris, Chris. Sound travels and your door is open. This is not good. This, this, this is points deducted from Team Chris, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> points, points awarded to Team Friedkin for, you know, the setup and oh, the delivery yeah. of this exposition. Don't right? let things go to his head. He has too, too much yeah. ego. Yeah, no more points. <laughs> Ten points deducted from Chris. No, I was trying to do an Alan Rickman. All right, never mind. Um, but yeah, so from Chris's words, we get all we need to know, right? But yeah, it's just. Like, we are very much with Sharon and Reagan. And, uh, Sharon, close the goddamn door. You're not so mad that you can't see that the door is still open. Close the door. Were you born in a barn? Is that why the horseman? Oh, that's why the horseman. That's why the horseman. <laughs> I was born in a barn. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> you merely live in a barn. I was born in it. <laughs> 
I never realized that Bane <laughs> sounds like a cartoon horse. <laughs> oh, you know that that must explain it. I'm not a huge fan of that movie, <laughs> so maybe maybe that's yeah, because <laughs> he's a cartoon horse. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember too much of that movie. Um, but I I remember that voice and thinking like we, now we have two people that we can barely understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. That's what that's what Batman is in that world. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a lack of communication, Batman. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Batman, go check that out. <laughs> there must be, right? There is a Batman. Yeah, no, there right? is. I, okay, I know great. there is. Yeah. I like Tom. I do like Tom Hardy in that role. I'll, I'll just say that. I, I, I'm yeah. glad he took a chance with that that voice. Yeah. I think it, and it's fun. It's a very fun voice to do, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, he looks amazing and mm-hmm. like all of his choices and everything. But like, I don't know. Um, we can't we, we might not even be able to blame him for the voice. That might be a, um, you know, um, a directorial <laughs> thing. Or yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm a fan of the voice. I think I think it's fine. Okay. <laughs> I think it's super fun. <laughs> the rest of the movie should be as fun as that. But it's OK. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought he was supposed to be menacing, not fun. <laughs> So he's more fun than Batman. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, th- I think so. It, it's a it's a cuckoo bananas. Yeah, it's a cuckoo bananas movie because he's like yeah. um, he he puts <laughs> he he throws Commissioner Gordon down a well at one point and then takes right. out Commissioner Gordon's speech where he's he's going to say something damning to Batman's legacy. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? And then he and then yeah. he blows up the stadium and kills the mayor and kills the uh-huh. Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. And then he says. Hello, Gotham City. I am the man who has blown up your mayor. Now, I have a note here, and you must totally believe me when I say where I got this from and what the note says. And it says, Batman is a doo-doo head. And everyone's like, oh, Batman's a doo-doo head. This guy who blew up the mayor just said so. No one who blows up stadiums can be an evil man. Right up there with those people who speak German. Right, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. It's a deep cut, folks. I, I get it. <laughs> I know you I get it. I understand that joke. Okay, I understood <laughs> that reference, right? Yes, Okay, yes. anyways, where are we? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, like I said, uh, we are very much in the shoes of Sharon and Reagan in this scene, right? Watching as it unfolds. Somewhere out there, there's a different movie with a different message and this exact same scene. And in that movie, we're with Chris and we're cheering her on as she gives it to that lousy piece of shit. We're like, yeah, you go, mom, mm-hmm. right? You tell him, right? But in this movie, same scene, we're like Sharon and Reagan. We're watching this person that we have grown to love, grown to trust. And now she's acting like this. Um, and like a child, we sort of feel like our whole world has been pulled out from under us. Uh, the movie is called The Exorcist. We know some scary stuff is going to happen. And up till now, we were hoping we could stick with you, Chris, like you and Karis. We're, you know, we're counting on you guys to help us through these scary times. But both of you guys are having trouble with the regular times. I think it's really smart to include Sharon at the beginning of the scene, even though she doesn't have any lines. It, it just it could have been just with Chris. But mm-hmm. to have Sharon there. um, Oh, I don't know. It speaks to everything you're talking about, but then also Reagan can look through the door and see both of the, both of her mother figures, like her basically her her older sister and her mother, right? right uh, not not helping her, right? Not helping her, and also not in control, right? And it helps us where Sharon is. Um, 
it helps us see what the relationship is between Chris and Sharon. Yes, they're friends, right? They're they're buddies. This is the woman who's helping to raise your child, but they're this sees the, the real hierarchy. This is the boss. In the previous scenes, it isn't necessarily seen that uh, Sharon is sitting at the table and giving her stuff, and it, it's sort of secretarial. But you know, Sharon is sitting at the the head of the table and looks like she's in charge of the family and telling Chris what she needs to deal with. And here, Sharon is on the floor, essentially scrambling to pick right. up the the cord. And this is what the real hierarchy is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, speaking to this, speaking to these like regular problems that uh, that the family is dealing with right now. Right. Um, I also take as the movie subtly reminding us that, hey, we don't need a demon for our regular life to be hard. And I like that the human drama is just as big, just as valid as the problem of a meddling demon. Later, much later, someone in the book remarks on all the evils of the world and they say, enough of these, and we have no need of Satan to manage our wars, these we manage for ourselves. I'm not going to say who said that. You can probably guess. But I wanted to repeat it, to recite it here, because I think it speaks to this scene, and it also speaks to something I caught myself unconsciously trying to do in this scene. Keenan, I have a, an, an, um, a confession to make. Uh-oh. So this time around, watching it in this way that we do, watching this scene, I caught myself trying to blame it on Captain Howdy. And I even started writing it down in the notes. I was like, okay, so he makes the whole house cold. So Sharon has to build up that fire. He's got that wind blowing outside, maybe, or or maybe he's just turned down the spiritual thermostat, which you're never supposed to touch, Captain Howdy. Dad's going to be mad. He said, leave it where it is. But but dad's not here. Keenan, dad's not here. <laughs> and dad doesn't have a, a thermostat app like we do today. and can tell when a child turns it Precisely. from Precisely. At least not one that reaches from the Hotel Excelsior. <laughs> so Howdy makes it cold. Then they make a fire. Then Howdy maybe like uh, pushed something over, you know, makes a picture frame fall. Chris goes to pick it up and it's a photo of Howard or maybe it's a photo of Reagan looking sad. And Chris remembers that her scumbag ex-husband hasn't called and she gets mad. But damn it, it's stuffy in here now. Cher, open the window and open the door and give me the phone. I'm going to give that asshole a piece of my mind. And boom, there you go. Instant trouble in the McNeil house. Just add water and stir. <laughs> yeah, Captain Howdy would win at Survivor. He would go around <laughs> picking all these fights and making everybody else upset. <laughs> Absolutely right. Right. Just being very, very subtle. Right. Like whispering in people's ears is like, but that's how it could have happened, as they say in the movie Clue with Madeline Kahn, who is indeed the goat. Mm-hmm. Um, but how about this? How about this? Keenan, Captain Howdy had nothing to do with any of this. And this is just a sad slice of life, a sad slice of reality that our characters are burdened with. Well, that's sadder, of course, than the demon is in control of everything. That's even worse. Right. And. That speaks to something that we're definitely going to talk more about later once we get into more like demonic stuff. But I want to mention it here. The whole trope of the devil made me do it, right? The devil as a highly active antagonist who is moving chess pieces and making things happen supernaturally so that he can get what he wants, right? My favorite kind of devil in stories is the one who sits back and observes. He comes out of the ether and into an already broken world, and he gives commentary. He's like an evil version of a Christmas Carol ghost. He's like, hey, protagonist, uh, let me show you just how evil and fucked your world already is without any inf- interference from me, right? Mm-hmm. And he's very persuasive. He's got his arm around the protagonist, right? He's like, now, Look at all of this. Look at all this evil. Wouldn't you agree that humanity is a failed experiment? Wouldn't you agree that you're unworthy of God's love? The closest you ever got to grace is maybe one hour on Sunday, if that. 
And then you're right back to being selfish, petty, mean, nasty brutes. I know about people. I know all about people. And I know all about you. And in those stories, in my favorite type of uh, devil story, it's less him trying to deceive you and more him trying to like prove a point. He's like, here's a bag of gold. Here's a magic cloak. Here's a fiddle, whatever. Now go out and prove me wrong. Show me you won't abuse this. Show me that mankind is good. You won't be able to. I know that dad is wrong about you. There's that dad again. But where is he? Yeah. Where is he, right? <laughs> He's not at the hotel. He's not at the hotel. He's absent too, right? <laughs> uh, I, I I do like Dr. Faustus, which is the Kit Marlowe version of the Faust story. Um, uh, so we've fallen into the Marlowe trap. I'm going to have to find different music for that. <laughs> But in that version, which is a little bit distinct from from the the German version, um, mm. we uh, Faust Faustus rather gets everything that he asks for very early on, and the rest of the play is just him refusing to believe in the powers he has essentially and trying to prove it to himself and as an extension of him trying to uh, or refusing rather to believe that God is existing. Uh, so he he gets the, all the smarts in the universe. He gets Helen of Troy. He gets all of that. And he's really just sort of uh, malaised about the whole thing. <laughs> and um, uh, Mephistopheles just has to come in and be, and be like, I've given you everything. Don't you see what you know? You just will not accept what's in front of you, that that magic is real and therefore God is real uh, and that you have a soul. You don't want to admit any of that. See, I I I like that. I really like that 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 old fashioned devil, like like commenting on uh, Faust's already like flawed nature, right? It's like you have problems. I can see you have problems. Mm-hmm. Like these are these are your problems. I'm laying these problems out. Like don't you see it's not me. Like you're already you already have work to do. Like before I even came to, you know, corrupt you, right? right? Um like in the Old Testament, Satan acts more like a heavenly prosecuting attorney rather than an enemy of God, right? He's a member of God's court. He's like, Your Honor, this man is unworthy of you because uh, X, Y, Z. And he lays out all the sins before God. And we do nowadays sometimes call him the accuser, but we now think of it as like malevolent when it was actually more like a function, like a, like a, like a job. Um, but in ancient Hebrew, it's actually, it's hasatan, not satan. And that extra Ha! Uh, it denotes it as like a title. It's a function. So it's like the Satan or a Satan with a lowercase s. And basically, it just refers to the antagonist or the the adversary in any given story. It's even used as a verb a couple of times, like when one char- character Satan's another character, right? Um, Jesus says to Peter, you know, that one time he's like, get behind me, Satan, uh, when Peter is blocking oh, Jesus' yeah, way. Yeah, that's one of the strange things in the bible that has that, not made sense <laughs> right. right and because we were so far like removed from it we don't understand like the the translation um subtleties we we make it up for ourselves and we interpret it as like oh uh, satan entered peter and tried to thwart jesus but no peter was just being a satan to jesus in that moment a more accurate translation would be uh like if jesus said like oh get behind me you satan or like stop being such a satan right now <laughs> oh wow that's very interesting I, I didn't know any of that stuff um, I guess it's a little like in um, in Arabic jihad. You know, in the West, we're like, oh gosh, jihad. That's the fight against uh, the West, essentially. That's what jihad is. And jihad just means struggle. And sometimes you jihad with yourself. Um, yes. So that mm-hmm. that's the biggest jihad for most uh, Muslims is is the struggle with yourself. With your with yourself, right? right. Like you're having these these uh, maybe maybe just with your life or with your faith or, or right. yeah, just the the struggle, the jihad to be a good person, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, like as times went on, the idea of Satan with a lowercase s, right? Prosecuting attorney Satan, right? Heavenly Satan with a dirty job. Um, I think naturally developed into Satan being uh, almost this other, this other godlike being in direct opposition to God. And now he's the author of evil rather than the accuser of it, right? And like we mentioned before, like Zoroastrianism, where there's like one good God and one bad God that may have had a hand in like shaping our modern day Satan with a capital S. Mm -hmm. But I also think that for us humans, the idea of a source of all the badness and author of evil that is not us is so attractive, is so <laughs> tempting <laughs> that it, it's easier for us just to say, oh, it's the devil's fault, right? The devil made me do it. If not for the devil, I would not have sinned, which is exactly what I was trying to do with this scene. I was trying to blame it all on Captain Howdy mm. and exactly what my favorite type of devil in stories would like laugh at. He would scoff at that. That's interesting, right? So we, I think it's hard for us to wrap our head around what, what God says essentially is that he has created everything. And with that, by extension, must be evil as well as good. He is the source of infinite good. I think that's easy for us to understand. Uh, then we have trouble grappling with this question of, uh, as the Catholics call it, original sin, right? That, that God has created in us inherently evil or, or badness or incompleteness. And how, why would that be? Um, so to personify it, that just makes so much more sense. It's so easy. Right. It's so much more linear. It's so much more streamlined. Right. Like we can, I can get behind that. I can get behind that there's like a bad guy with, you know, horns and a tail, um, you know, making me late for work and <laughs> making, you know, making my soccer game lose and, you know, and, and causing me to, you know, take that extra drink or, you know, eat that extra, you know, uh, donut or whatever. And he's the, he's, like almost like you're, like you're right. So you're sort of blowing my mind. I'm sort of repeating what you've been saying. <laughs> so he's, he, yeah, the way we think of him is he's almost as powerful as God, which is not biblical. That's not anywhere. There is no God, but God, and he's the, the ultimate. Um, mm -hmm. So in our extra biblical, um, when I say mythology, don't take that wrong uh, if, if you're listening, but, but like in the extra biblical ideas that we've evolved, right. He is, he is Satan's um, the Joker to Satan's Batman, <laughs> right? He is as strong as as the as as uh, God. Sometimes even stronger, which doesn't mm -hmm. really jive with the theology. Right, right. There's, um, I mean, and again, at the risk of running long, but I I love this stuff. <laughs> um, uh, uh, have you heard of the the philosophical conundrum, the problem of evil? Um, I believe so. I've, I've, I've heard it more in, in Judaism, where they have mm. uh, a harder time explaining it. I believe if we're mm. talking about the same problem. Yeah. I, I, so I'm going to, I'm going to try to explain it, um, in, in, you know, my very, very kind of like simple understanding mm -hmm. of it. Um, and, and tell me if this is the same thing that, that you've heard. So the idea of like, why is there evil? Right. And if we have a God that is, um, that is all knowing, all loving and all powerful, then evil should not exist. Mm -hmm. right? right. Because like, if he's all knowing, then he knows about the evil right? If he's all loving, then he doesn't want the evil to happen. If he's all powerful, then he, uh, what was it? Then, then he can stop the evil. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so like those three things, like what was like, well, we know he's all knowing, all loving, all powerful. So like philosophers have kind of like, well, it's like, well, maybe he's all knowing and all loving, but he's not all powerful. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, so in that sense, like, yeah, uh, Satan is the Joker to God's Batman. Right. Mm -hmm. Or then we look at it, it's like, oh, well, okay, maybe he's all powerful and he's all knowing, but he's not all loving. Right. And they, they make that 
distinction. They say, well, yeah, like he's, he doesn't care that we're suffering or they go, it's like, okay, well, he's all loving. He's all powerful, but he's not all knowing. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and and so like, it's one of, one of those things has to go in order for evil to make sense in the world. Right. Until finally somebody, somebody came up with the idea. It's like, well, what about, what about uh, free will? Mm -hmm. Like the idea of free will. um, And again, like, I don't, I don't remember who, who said this. Um, It was another philosopher. They said the existence of free will it sort of answers that because there are there are beings uh you know like in in the christian mythology right mm-hmm. um we're talking about like extra biblical you know or like in the apocrypha and the hidden you know things like the nine ranks of angels and everything like that mm-hmm. right like human beings mankind is unique uh amongst uh you know god's creations in that we were given free will we were given the ability to do evil and the you know the freedom to do it the freedom of thought the freedom of um of uh, um yeah, the, the the freedom of our own minds, and we were also like given the ability to uh, redeem ourselves, right? right? To to come back from from evil and stuff like that. And that I I don't know if that answers the problem of evil or not. <laughs> you didn't solve it. <laughs> I still think we didn't solve it. So yeah, yeah. folks, folks. <laughs> The Exorcist Minute attempted it, but um, we still have evil in the world and we don't know why. Right. Uh, please write in your solutions uh, to the problem of evil to theexorcistminute at gmail.com. And yeah, folks, at this point, like it's been, it's been, we've had, we've had enough years of evil. Can we, like, we would like to solve this problem. <laughs> right. So the version that I'm a little, slightly more familiar with um, mm. is, is what you do with it in, uh, in modern Judaism. Like there's a mm. book from the 80s, I believe, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Mm, okay, and that's the question. You know, why do good why do bad things happen to good people? Right. Um, in in modern Judaism, which does mm. not have the New Testament, it doesn't have a lot of our ideas of of how to get to grace or any of those things. Um, and some of your ideas of free will are missing from some of the most foundational uh, moments in Judaism, like oh. uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Right? He does not have free will in that case, and he goes and and does what he's going to do, and then and then God stops him at the last second and says, "Hey, you did right because you did not have free will. You did everything that you're supposed to do." And Job, similarly, he doesn't have. Um, he has evil upon evil uh, foisted upon him, and he does not um, waver from you know uh, God's plan for him, and that's right. It. Right, um, and, and praising God and loving God, and, and yeah. right. So the modern, I mean, modern by like post World War II questions of the problem of evil in Judaism are, are seated in the Holocaust, right, and the near destruction of God's chosen people. Uh, and so, how could that be? Or right? what do you deal with that? Um, so, is God not all powerful? Is God? Um, testing you with with the Holocaust, that would seem to me that he is not all good, exactly what you're saying. Right. Um, I think a, a harder, so I think a lot of, um, you know, post-World War II Jews have, have uh, grappled with that question and seem to have come out of it in a pretty good place. Uh, I think the question they have had a harder time answering is not, um, why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, hmm. They have not quite solve that so again if you have any solutions to that (laughs) why do good things happen to bad people uh write to us Mm -hmm. send us a message folks this is this is like this is a question that we've been when asking for you know uh our whole lives so yeah (laughs) we'd love an answer to that uh (laughs) but anyway so um let's see uh yeah keenan so yeah that's why i love this story um i think that's why i love this depiction of the devil he's kind of like a combination of those two things we talked about Mm -hmm. right he's definitely a bad guy he's definitely god's enemy but he plays that like passive cynical accusatory like i'm gonna lay your sins bare in front of you and watch you squirm i didn't kill your mother karis who killed her karis 
Who really killed her? And Chris, I'm not here because of anything Reagan did. I'm her friend. I talk to her and I listen to her when you're too busy. Mm. Where's her father, Chris? Whose fault is that? Not mine. I'm just good old Captain Howdy. Mm. Reliable Captain Howdy. You're all sinners and I'm just proving my point. I love that. I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, back to this minute. So Reagan overheard this, and we follow her as she walks despondently over to her own bed. And we can see most prominently in this shot a diorama of photos. Looks like we got um, Chris and her father in the far right, um, like they're holding each other. Mm -hmm. And then what must be Howard in the strangest photo I've ever seen. It looks (laughs) like like it, it was meant to be one of those like glamour shots or something like that. But like the face this guy is making in this photo (laughs) like even with the blurriness of the film it looks like he just got hit with a tennis ball from the other photo and his eyes what do you do to his eyes what the heck is it like yeah like again those sunken eyes like there's no eyes in there right (laughs) and in the photo on the far left we see them like together again they're playing tennis right um but in that that middle photo that middle photo of a father looking right at her and he's got this like weird grimace on his face like he's looking at his daughter like Like, (laughs) again you're not supposed to look watch the movie like we're watching it (laughs) pause it look at these photos <laughs> and then uh did you see that ch- uh, she has a charlie brown on her desk i show? saw the charlie brown and the snoopy yeah so oh where's this oh i see the snoopy now oh there we mm-hmm. go yeah so yeah again like oh there's real brands in here slowly mm-hmm. uh, sneaking their way in real existing art uh you know mm-hmm. pop culture rather yeah yeah snoopy's art and i take that back snoopy is art snoopy is art yeah um and I think that makes it even sadder. Like these real things, like, you know, Snoopy's there to comfort her, mm-hmm. right? And and what's really sad about this, like, setup, right? Reagan isn't in these photos. It looks as though these might have been taken before she was born. So, like, this diorama is a shrine to mom and dad's love for each other, right? You got them holding each other on one side and then playing tennis on the other side. And then you got dad in the middle, the biggest picture. So, so it's a shrine to mom and dad as a unit, but it's mostly a shrine to dad because he's in all of these photos, mm-hmm. right? And even sadder, she has this on her desk, right? She's got some books open. And again, like the the Charlie Brown and the Snoopy, right? And, you know, it looks like she's doing some schoolwork. And so she only has to look up and see those photos as she's working. She's literally inches away from them and they would be so huge in her vision. And it's just a reminder of what used to be and what's going on right now. <sighs> Meanwhile, mom is losing it in the other room. It's it's always so much scarier when adults, when parents or teachers are upset around children because then as children, we feel like, well, what means anything anymore, right? Like I'm the one who cries. I'm the one who gets mad. And mom's always there to bring it back to a safe place. Mom is the safe place in the same way that like if the outside world is scary, you go back to your house. But now it's like my house is on fire mm-hmm. or my house is haunted. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we cut from Chris's shrill cry. Like, I was like, don't tell me to be calm, goddammit, to the shrill ringing of uh, the phone. Time has passed. Chris is in bed. The phone is ringing. She reaches out. She fumbles for it. Um, yeah, that's a great fake out where we think it's going to be Howard or something related to Howard. Exactly, right? Um, but yeah, so she picks it up and sounds like she knows who's calling out already, right? So she doesn't say hello, but it's like, yeah. And then you're kidding me. And I really like how she knows who's on the other end uh, because of the way our show works. We don't know yet, right? Because this is the end of our minute. Mm-hmm. So right now, it could be anyone. Could it be Reagan's father? Did he finally call back? We'll have to wait until next time to find out. Oh. 
Oh my God. We covered a lot in this minute. Hopefully it was all interesting. Um, and hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I'm always surprised when uh, I look down at my notes and I have like several paragraphs as I, you know, and I glance up uh, at the time and we're only like 17 seconds into the minute. Um, and I think that's an indication that we picked a good film to do this like minute by minute thing. Yeah. I, I, I wonder with some movies that, um, wouldn't we wouldn't be able to i don't know but there's this one is just chock full of stuff yep there's so much stuff that blatty and friedkin packed into every minute i sound like a kid's cereal commercial it's like packed into every bite <laughs> captain howdy cereal <laughs> oh no it would be captain howdy like you know with a little like captain crunch yeah that's how i say it anyways captain captain howdy right <laughs> listeners please if anyone is artistically inclined i will buy sight unseen a print of your captain howdy cereal box <gasps> art I want that. I, I want that too. <laughs> I want that too. You know, Captain Crunch. Um, the, you know the controversy about his rank. Captain Crunch's stolen valor. What he he, he says he's a captain. Yeah. But if you look at his uniform, he is a commander. <gasps> oh. He has he has what he doesn't have the captain stripes. He has the commander stripes. He he's How been calling himself captain, captain the whole time. That sounds like a real Captain Howdy move. That is a, that is a most definitely a Captain Howdy move. <laughs> and I think Captain Howdy cereal would also cut the roof of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the box would give you hives just touching it the bo- <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh and the the toy at the bottom yeah yeah it just memories you had forgotten of your mom being mad at you no <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh god i totally forgot that time at the store <laughs> oh yay a new box of captain howdy cereal and you just like what's it what's at the bottom what's it oh existential dread oh, god oh i already got this one <laughs> see if someone will trade you <laughs> yeah right so i have two existential dreads <laughs> can i get like you know a crisis of faith or, no. god Hi. Uh, and, and speaking of folks, gosh, I, I hope this minute isn't going too long. We now have a Facebook page and more importantly, a Facebook group. Uh, the page is the page is just the Exorcist Minute, right? It's a, it's a page for the show. Uh, but the listener group, you can join and you can talk about the movie, interact with us, post memes or questions or observations or box art of Captain Howdy cereal, just saying anything you want. Um, the group is called Compelling Conversations, colon, an Exorcist Minute listener group. Um, it's a private group, but we're not uptight. Just ask to join and we'll let you in. Um, and as always, if you'd like to leave us a message, uh, you can get us at theexorcistminute at gmail.com and we'll be sure to read it uh, on the air if you like. Uh, just specify if you want us to name you or not. Um, if you like the show and you want to help us out, one of the best things you can do for us is to leave a little five-star review and that'll help other people find us uh, and uh, we can keep growing this really cool community. Ah. Uh, I think that's it, Keenan. Um, is there anything else that we that we missed? I think we got everything. Yeah, we think we got we got everything. Okay, so Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Until next time, folks. The, the power, power of Captain Crunch, Crunch compels, compels you. you, valor stealing son of a.